I've been in a funk lately. And I was reflecting as I was sitting there, bringing my funk track up on stage and sharing it all with you. I just had this thought occur in my head. And it's a good thought because it's a scripture thought. And here's what it is. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And so with that in mind, I'd like you to um, join me in opening the scriptures up to the book of Ephesians. If you didn't bring a Bible this morning, we're finally restocked on our few Bibles, so there should be one just in reach. Ephesians is a New Testament book, and if you're not familiar with the Bible, you'll find an index at the front that will help you find it. We are beginning a new study in Ephesians chapter 2 this morning that we have titled, Death to Life. For the next three weeks, we're going to be um, documenting, reflecting on, considering this transition. For those of you who are Christians, we're going to be answering the question, just was it, what is it that has happened in our life because of Christ? And if you're not a Christian this morning, we're so glad that you're joining us. This is a great time for you to be here. This is a chance for you to encounter um, Christianity at its core. By what, which I mean how we answer the question, what is wrong and how is it fixed? It is the big question of life. And we're going to look at it in, in three sections. Um, the depth of death that will be today. Next week we will look at the height of life. And then finally uh, we will look at the miracle means. How has this taken place? But as we open up um, in chapter 2, before we read the whole passage through, I just want to draw your attention to the first four words. And you were dead. Ernest Hemingway is famous for a lot of reasons. But one of my favorite Ernest Hemingway is famous for sentences finishes with, Ernest Hemingway is famous for winning a competition to write an entire story in six words. And here's the story he wrote. For sale, baby shoes, never won. And the reason why that's powerful is, is two reasons. One is because in six words he makes you feel something. And second, because although you don't have all the details, you're drawn into the story. Instead of wandering off and going, I, whatever. But Paul, Paul tells a better story in four words. And you were dead. It has that same drawing in. That same weight. What? That's, there's more to the story. There's not less. And you were dead. And there's also a sense of feeling there, isn't there? Instead of the sadness and the grief that you feel in Hemingway's six-word story. And you were dead is inevitably a story of hope. It is a you know crescendo symphony of strings, and you were dead. So with that in mind, what goes on from here is the story told more fully. What goes on from here is, is, is the reflection. In the 1990s, almost every story we told in film began at the end. They give away the conclusion, 
and then they wind you back to the beginning. They did this in American Beauty, they did this in Fight Club, they did this in The Prestige. It was the only way we told stories in the late 90s and the early aughts. Now that's not what Paul is doing here, but he does start with a big kind of summary description. You were dead, and then he wants to show us what he means when he says that. So read with me as he unpacks this. And I want you to picture with me, since we're talking about death, I want you to picture a cemetery, and I want you to picture a shovel. And I want you to notice how deep the digging goes. Because with every sentence is another shovel of the spade, and we find ourselves, if you will, as humanity, the problem this Christianity describes it, well beyond six feet under. Read with me, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Let's pray. God, we want to take your word as your word this morning. We recognize that what Paul describes here is not just his opinion or thoughts on the matter. It's not just the philosophical ponderings of a wise man. It is a divine description. It is the detailed account of reality. And so we pray, Lord, that that word would be revealing, but I also pray that it would be revealing in the way that it's meant, as Paul writes to Christians, and as Paul writes that as being the beginning, but not the end of the story. So I pray, Lord, that as we read this, we would reflect on the distance that you have brought us in salvation, that we would reflect on the depth of our spiritual condition before we Solely as a measure of the height of what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. We pray that you would speak to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to go back to those first four words again. And I want to, we're not just going to go one word at a time all morning, but I do want to go one word at a time just to get us started. And that begins with that little word, and, right? The chapter opens up here, but it's not really a beginning, it's a continuation. So it's helpful to remember where we were. What Paul has just done is he's prayed that the church in Ephesus, and us along with him, would know, with the help of God's power, would know the hope to which we have been called. The glorious inheritance that we have in the saints as the people of God, with a God of the people, and the power that is at work in us, which worked when God raised Jesus from the dead, and seated him at his right hand, far above all powers and principalities and rulers and authorities, and placed all things under his feet, and gave him his head over all things to the church. Right? That's where we were. So when Paul says, and here, 
he's continuing that talk. In other words, I would suggest to you that Paul really, really, really wants us to know the power that is work, at work in us. And so he begins by saying, Exhibit A, that is the power that raised Jesus from the dead. That's what we focused on last week. Now he says, Exhibit B, this is the power that raised you from the dead. Okay? That's why the end is here. And so when we ask, what is this passage for and how should we read it, it's not simply an anthropology. A description of humanity. It is biographical and past tense. And that's what we see next. And you, right? And so careful, church. Don't read this passage and reflect on the world out there and take on an us and them mentality and shake your head both in, you know, in, in pity uh, or, or even in that kind of distancing self-righteousness. We're talking about you. Paul is not talking to a non-Christian audience and saying, this is who you are. He's speaking to us this morning and saying, this is who you were. Now, there's overlap there. There's things that can be learned. In fact, if you're not a Christian here this morning, again, this is a good time for you to be here. But Paul is primarily speaking to us this morning that are Christians. And you, and then lastly, that word, were. Now, intentionally, we're stopping at verse 3 this morning. But I want you to notice the opening words of verse 4, where we'll pick up next week. But God. And you were, but God. Okay? And we have to keep that context in mind as well. This is a dark picture. But it's not the whole picture. It's not a complete picture. But again, what I would suggest to you is that when the Bible paints the condition of humanity, the problem with our world, it paints with a deeper black than any other philosophy, any other religious approach. Which is why the message of what's necessary, what, what is needed to fix, is literally something you can't do because that's how bad it is. And we see that very clearly here just in his open description. And you were dead. Just that word in and of itself is kind of an all-encompassing, big-picture, dark problem. He doesn't say, and you were dying. He doesn't say, and you were in danger. Right? In fact, if we, if we just stop there and, and we just say, you're dead, we would also parallel with that with the language of game over. <laughs> right? There's no story after that in the way that we think about things. That's what's so marvelous about that is that there is a story after that. But the starting place is the end of the line. And he describes that. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So this isn't a passive death. This is a living death. But nonetheless, you were dead. And what I want you to notice is what we see in the beginning is personal behavior. Dead in your trespasses and sins. Those are the things that you do. 
Walking is a description for Paul of what it looks like to live your life, and he's going to use it a lot more in chapter 4. But the way you used to walk was this way. And so there's, there's a will here. There's a true personality here. There's choice and desire here. And we'll come back to that later. But there's also more than that. Because how did we walk? Notice he says, we walked according to the course of this world. We walked following the prince of the power of the air. And then it says in verse 3, among whom we all once lived by the passions of our flesh. All of those have a causal relationship. All of them have a cause and effect relationship. Why were we dead in our trespasses and sins? Now, especially with modern psychology, there's, there has begun an attempt to answer the question, why do we do what we do? Why are we who we are? How do you explain why we choose this or choose that or struggle with this or believe that or shy away from this? Right? In, in some sense, that's the big question. Because if we can answer that, our world believes if we can answer that question, then we know what to change to change the outcome. And even if you're not a Christian this morning, this is a great place to start when we talk about what is wrong with humanity. Just ask the question, do things need to change? Do you experience places in your life that need to be different? Do you experience dynamics in your family that need to be different? Do you look at the world around you and you say, that's not right? What you're saying is both moral in the sense of right versus wrong and desiring you want things to be different. And so the assumption is that it's a good one. If you know what's wrong, then you can fix it. And so here, we have humanity as a whole. We have ourselves apart from Christ. And it says we walked, again, look at verse 2, following the course of this world. This is close to what the world means when it talks about cultural determinism. After the great modernist experiment that believed that we could objectively observe and change all things just by figuring out how things work and fixing things. And we thought that we could pull apart our blind spots and our biases and just trust the science. And we did that for 150 years and like every other philosophy before it, we used it for good and for evil. And so postmodern thinkers came in and they said, actually, a good deal of what you're doing is not scientific at all because you bring who you are into the laboratory. And you're the one who interprets the data. And you're the one who applies it. And so you can say, we're studying the science of evolution and then suddenly eugenics. Right? Or we can reject and say, you other people groups have nothing to offer because we have the science on our side. And now we're living in the consequences, the unforeseen consequences of the scientific endeavor that put too much trust in our own ability. And so postmoderns came in and they said, you can't escape your culture. In fact, everything you are is shaped by your position, by your upbringing, by the belief system of those who came before you. 
right? And the scary thing about culture, and this is true, is that we don't see it, we assume it, right? We don't question our culture, we question everybody else's. We just assume that ours is right, good, healthy, proper, true. And the Bible actually says, yeah, that's a problem. You walk according to the course of this world. But notice here, it doesn't limit it down to individual cultures, but the human culture as a whole, which grows in all sorts of varieties, but all of them are intoxicating. When it says here, we follow the course of the world, there's a recognition here that we are enslaved to something larger than ourselves. That there is a human condition that is the greater than the sum of its parts. Listen, as modern Americans, we are so bad at thinking about how we relate to the rest of humanity. We think that we are independent, that we are self-made men and women, that we choose our destiny, that we bring our talents to bear, that we, you know, so many of these things. But consider Robinson Crusoe. Like, we would expect that to be the archetype of the American spirit. Survival through ingenuity, doing it all by yourself. But when Robinson Crusoe makes a rope, how does he know how to do that? Because he grew up and was trained and instructed. It's not baby Robinson Crusoe, who is the hero of that story. It's someone who has been shaped and invested in and, right, even that is not independent. And so we have this huge issue, which is that you have inherited, inherited and participated and fully embraced this broader reality. But it also holds you in its clutches. Determines your plausibility structures, what you believe or don't believe. Guys, one of the things that shook me over the last two years was watching how much your location on a map of the United States shaped your opinions. Did you notice? And a lot of us were so busy rejecting the other side to not notice that we can guess a person's opinions by who their neighbors are. And I see it as we cross the King County border. As I talk with Christians on the other side in Snohomish, they're a very different group of people with very different opinions and very different comfort levels about what's going on. But they also share a zip code. So there is a sense where the postmoderns get it right. And cultural determinism is a problem. But the Bible would actually say it's worse of a problem. Because it's inescapable. And it's universal. And the big problem is there that the world, as the scriptures put it, is opposed to God. Unanimously, collectively, and not in a conscious way. Right now there's a danger of always looking for conspiracies and wondering who's pulling the strings. We don't need that as humanity. We, we are bent enough that without thought we do awful things unintendedly. Okay. That's, that's the way it works. That's the world. This is why we have stores like Hot Topic. 
who sell rebellion so that everybody can buy the same rebellious clothes. Right? We, this, is, this is the problem. And so effectively, this is how I think about it. You think, I'm driving my car, I can go wherever I want, I choose the speed, I choose the road. But you didn't build the roads. You didn't build them. And so you're going to drive the roads that are out in front of you. And sometimes these roads are, are driven so much that they become a rut. And you can think all about all you want about the whole world out there, but on left and right of you, six foot high walls and no exits, no off ramps. You're just part of this long line of cars. It doesn't stop there. And this is the problem with with this answering this question of what's wrong with humanity, or where is the problem, or what determines who you are and what you do is almost every answer we give is a simple and faddish answer. And so that answer that the culture is the problem, sure, but also, Scripture continues. Paul puts the shovel on another time. So notice what he says next. He says, not only are we following the course of this world, but we follow the prince of the power of the air, the spirits that, spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. When we talk about human beings today, when we describe them, we generally try and be holistic and recognize that they are physical, spiritual, and social. Okay. At the very least, we try and hold those things together. And here, very clear, uh, Paul moves from the social category to the spiritual category. And there are lots of versions of this, lots of assessment to this, philosophies and religions that would recognize the same thing, that there is a spiritual realm, that there is an unseen reality. And so maybe it's the stars and astrology. Maybe it's going to see a psychic. Maybe it's the gods that need to be appeased, and if you appease them, life will go in a different way. As, uh, again, as moderns with this scientific and naturalistic embrace, we can sometimes reject these things. But let me put it a different way. Another way that we sometimes talk about what shapes us as human beings is the environmental determinants. In other words, what's going on around you. And that's more than just the broad realities of culture. It's more than just the world. It's, it's you know, do you live in a hostile environment or a peaceful one? But here's the thing. I want you to notice two realities here about this spiritual realm. One that we can often get wrong as Christians. So when it identifies here the prince of the power of the air, let me give you another word for that. Let me just say it down. Say There is a personal, spiritual being who seeks your harm. One of the words that the scriptures use is that he is the enemy. And one of the scary things about not being spiritually in tune to reality is what would it be like to live as if somebody was constantly clawing your arm and you didn't know he existed? That's a scary thing. But it's scarier than that in this passage. Because what does it say here? Not that we are standing against a powerful entity that's seeking our harm, 
but that we are walking in his ranks, following the prince of the power of the air. And more than that, what does he say after that? The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's not the enemy without, that's the enemy within And this is what's wrong with a spirituality apart from understanding the reality of evil. Because sometimes we think, well, I need to be more spiritual. I just need to open myself up to. But what are you opening yourself up to? G.K. Chesterton said the problem with psychics is, is not the frauds. It's not that we question if this is really real. It's that we assume if it is real, that it's good for us. That we can trust the voices from beyond to lead us and tell the truth and guide us to good things. The spiritual atmosphere of the world we live in is dark and dangerous. Not the natural. We live in a realm of a hostile spiritual takeover. So notice this, there's, there's the social reality of our behavior, and now we see there's a spiritual reality. And again, it's not just there's an enemy, we're on the wrong team. In Colossians it says that Jesus, or God in Jesus, has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. So again, we can't, we can't remove our responsibility here and say just something like, I am oppressed by the devil. You're on the table. You're in step with him. But he doesn't stop there. Another way that we've gone about looking around life is biological. You were a body, a bag of flesh, firing synapses, a brain. Right? You, are, you are chemically composed. And scientifically, we've discovered correlations that we didn't know between your brain and the rest of your body, between your emotions and what's going on you know, in, in, in your mind. We've seen all of these connections, and so it's become popular to say, you are biologically determined, and we do this in a lot of ways. We, we say, the reason you are the way you are is because there's something wrong physiologically in your brain. Or, we say, the reason you are who you are is because there is something built into your genetic code. And again, as much as we might sometimes think as Christians, no, free will, you're more than those things, we should start with the fact that actually that's a real issue. <laughs> because what does he say here? He says here in verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Where do your passions and desires come from? 
You're walking willfully, freely, 
later bands is a band called Cake. They have a song called Satan is My Hope. And one of the things I love about Cake as a band is they're tremendously honest. So they have another song saying, Jesus wrote a blank check, one I haven't cashed just yet. I hope there's still time. And I love the honesty there, because there's a recognition of, I'm not going to cash today, because i got something else I want to do. And in the same way, Satan is My Motor is this song that uses a car as a metaphor for life, and it says, I've got wheels of polished steel, I've got tires that grab the road, and seats that selflessly hold my friends, and an engine that can carry the heaviest of loads, a mind that can seal me to your house, and a heart that can bring you red flowers. My intentions are good and earnest and true, but under the hood is internal combustion power, Satan. start to understand why Jesus needed to come. And we start to understand why the church for 2,000 years has been adamant that although Jesus was a teacher, he was more than a teacher. And although he was a prophet, so he didn't just teach us the truth, but he spoke for God, he was more than a prophet. When the scriptures say, you must be saved, Notice the verbiage there is a passive imperative. Meaning, this has to happen, but also, you can't do it. When we talk about faith as Christians, faith is inherently an expression of inability. Do you know that? It says, God, I'm trusting you, you will do this because I can't. Our issue is not merely because we choose other things than God. Our issue is that we choose other things from God, from the choices that are laid out before us, which are all wrong. Our issue is that the body that informs those wills and desired choices is bent. Our issue is that our spiritual component that's capable of communing with the living God is tuned to the wrong channel. Now listen, if you're a Christian here this morning, there was some sort of a felt need that brought you to Jesus. A taste of that. A sense of reality where you suddenly went, I'm in trouble. But it probably wasn't all these things. And even this morning, depending on where you're at, you might need to take some of this on faith. You might need to say, well, I don't know this personally. I haven't experienced this personally. But the Bible says this is true. But apart from that, the reality this comprehensive. It's this abundant. Which is why all of humanity's self-salvation projects don't work. It's why we flee an evil country and start our own and grow up into an evil country. It's why we remove ourselves from our families and do all the work of understanding how they harmed us and yet still 
of these things. It's why we change our diet and our sleep, sleep habits. And we wire our brains. And it's why as human beings we're constantly coming up with the great new miracle drug or treatment or philosophy or these types of things. And after 20 years of it we go, whoa, they were crazy. But we do it again. Why? Because that's how bad the need is. If you're locked in a room and it's filling with water, when do you just give up and sit and wait to drown? You try this tool and that tool breaks and you try that tool. Everybody knows in those still moments the dark reality. Things are not okay. Glorious. Salvation is God provided. Answers all these issues. Just, just, just quickly read in verse four with me. But God, being rich in mercy, which is good news because we're children of wrath. But God, being rich of mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, which is good news because we've sided with the enemy who hates God great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ, which is good news because we are dead. Now remember Paul's purpose here. He wants us to understand in a greater way the power of God. And I don't mean to spoil the plot but this isn't just a practice in thinking. He wants you to know the power of the purpose. He doesn't want you to just have an epiphany and go, wow, God really is powerful. As he gets to the second half of Ephesians, the reason is because he wants you to walk differently than how you used to walk. But if the God who brought the dead to life is part of the scenario, then you can live as a life. And so although this is a past tense passage, this is who you were, we are still fully capable of living this life. Jesus says, I did not come to condemn the world, but to give life. In the middle of that, sometimes gets forgotten. He says, for the world is condemned. The starting place is judged. The starting place is enslaved. The starting place is dead. So God sent the resurrection. But we are fully capable of sitting up in our grave spitting the fresh dirt out of our mouth and then making tea right in the middle of the cemetery. We are fully capable of being rescued as a prisoner of war and brought to the other side and enlisted in a new kingdom and wandering back into that prison, sitting down and slapping the shackles back on our wrists because it's what we know. And we are fully 
fully capable because the old man is still alive in you and those desires are there. And what Jesus does is not rip those things out of you but give you something new. New desires. A new will by the Spirit. In fact, he enlightens your spirit, and so now there's the flesh that wars against the spirit, and the spirit wars against the flesh. That's not how it was. You used to be 100% flesh. And it's totally a Jekyll and Hyde scenario, where you can think that there's these two things at war, but Hyde is Jekyll. He's just Jekyll in Hyde. And if you haven't read the book, that's the point of the book, right? He thinks that he finally wins out, but he carries Jekyll with him. So these problems are still problems for us. They're still present. But the deciding victory has been won. And this is no longer what you have to do, because this is who you are, and this is what the world has laid out before you. You now have another opportunity in what God has done in Christ for you. This is why Jesus said, for whom the Son sets free is free indeed. We need this message as Christians more than ever. Because that determinism game that I mentioned, which again, the scripture wholeheartedly agrees with. But we can carry it into our Christian life and we can say, the deciding factor on what I'm going to do tomorrow, or the options that are open for the rest of my life, or who I'm going to be as a parent, or, or how I'm going to feel in a week, that's all been controlled by this, that, and the other. And that can leave us hopeless. But God took all the determining factors, death, and gave us a new determining factor in Jesus Christ that blows open the possibilities and the opportunities, that resets reality and brings an unknown exponent into the equation, it changes the solution. Bruce Willis in The Sixth Sense has a problem. A problem that we don't even know he has in the beginning of the movie, which is that he's dead and he doesn't know. But even for Bruce Willis, throughout the film, there's this one very evident sign of death. In a locked door. He's tried to open many times. It never seems to open. 
And he's totally blind. He can't tell. The reason it can't open is because there's a piece of furniture in front of it. Because he's dead, and his wife has moved on, and has wanted to forget that part of their life. So she's closed that door. He can't see the table, but the door will not open. And every one of us who's a Christian here, remember when we saw the table. When we suddenly, like house in just let it out. Which is why we don't just talk about salvation as an act of trust, but an act of surrender. I would encourage you this morning. If you're not a Christian, to ask God to pull back the curve and show you the way And I know it's a weird thing to say. And I think it's probably a weird thing to ask unless you're dead and there's a God who wants to make you alive. The reason why Christianity presents Jesus as the only answer is because this is not an equation that allows for a domain possible because we have nothing available to us, not a single tool that is still capable of the task because it's all been co-opted. So you, you do need repentance. But you also need the possibility of repentance. And you do need to change what you believe but you also need something to cut through the lies and proclaim the truth. And ultimately, you don't need a tune-up or a renovation or even to be restored. You need to be resurrected. You need to be made alive. You need to be born again. Just these four words, and you were dead. Because the answer to the question of what you're going to believe tomorrow, how you're going to live tomorrow, how you're going to hold up and suffer, how you're going to respond to hatred, the determining factor, the controlling cause, 
know we need Jesus, but there's spices of this that just seem too deep or too dark or too powerful. So we keep those doors closed. I pray that you help us to take your statement on the problem and your solution in the fullness of faith and begin to walk in the newness of life no longer instead enslaved and co-opted and, and totally beholden by our own fleshly desires. And I also want to lift up those of us who are already there. We're just in a fresh moment of desperation. We need to be saved again. We need to be delivered again. We need to experience the newness of life in Christ, not just as a past reality, but a present power. And that goes both for those of us who are just captive and those of us who are just pulling against the chains, trying to do this on our own and seeking to clean ourselves up so that we can come back to God. Instead, all you ask us to do, as you've always done, is, is to be saved. To allow you, to ask you, to be available to you saving us. And I pray for all of us, those who know you, Jesus, and those who don't, that you would give us eyes to 